0: Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the conceptually vague Ricky Orpike. Hello. Ricky, uh, have you ever, you know, used, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of words out there, trauma, bullying, they're sort of getting out of hand. You feel like they're getting out of hand a bit?
1: Yeah, I, I, I feel like these definitions don't mean anything anymore.
0: No. Well, that's why we're talking to uh, Dr. Nick Haslam today. Uh, a fantastic discussion. Now, I think people are going to enjoy this because he is, I mean, as you know, we we, we like hot takes. Yeah? Yeah. I love we like, a good hot take. Yeah. Well, that, well, Nick is thoughtful and considered and he is going to counteract some of uh, the downright hysteria that comes mm. uh, out of our mouths every now yep. and then.
1: He, he's a calming presence. He
0: is. So enjoy the interview uh, with Nick Haslam.
1: Nick Haslam is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne. In addition to his prolific academic work, he's uh, contributed to The Conversation, Time, The Monthly, The Guardian, The Washington Post. And The Australian and more. His books uh, include Psychology in the Bathroom, Introduction to Personality and Intelligence, Yearning to Breathe Free, Seeking Asylum in Australia, and Introduction to the Taxometric Method. He is the author of an influential paper entitled Concept Creep, Psychology's Expanding Concepts of Harm and Pathology, which has been cited formally and informally by experts and pundits all around the world, and he's here to talk us through the genesis and impact of this fascinating piece. Nick, welcome to The New Flesh.
0: Thanks for having me. So, Nick, I'm very excited to talk to to you about your ideas uh, because if I'm honest, there is a part of me that is now waiting for someone to mention you or your work so that I can say with authority, you know nothing of Professor Haslam's work. Uh, So that is a petty part of
2: the motivation here, full disclosure. That's just like that wonderful scene in, I think it's uh, Annie Annie Hall. Hall. Yes. Where Malcolm McLuhan uh, comes in and and, uh, it's a wish fulfilment. Yeah, look, um, you can name drop me whenever you like, John. I'm not sure how much that's really worth, (laughs) but um, uh, I'm I'm flattered.
1: Well, in our circles, it's worth a whole hell of a lot. So thank you. Well, Nick, uh, what is concept creep? Can you give us an overview of the concept?
2: Sure. Concept creep is just the gradual tendency for concepts to do with harm to expand their meanings over time. So to give you an example, uh, bullying. Bullying was introduced to psychology by a Norwegian psychologist called Dan Olweus back in the 70s, and he defined bullying uh, as a particular kind of peer aggression among children, and it had to be intentional, uh, in- intimidating behaviour, it had to be repeated, It had to be in the context of a power imbalance where a more powerful, larger kid or group of kids picked on a smaller, less powerful kid. Uh, And over time, uh, in psychology at least, and I think also in the wider culture, bullying has come to refer to a much wider range of things. So for a start, it now refers as much to adult behavior in workplaces as it does to kid behavior in playgrounds. Uh, The intentionality, criterion was relaxed. So now you can bully someone, even if it's not intended that way. Uh, The repetition criterion was relaxed. So now a single episode of intimidation gets called bullying. Uh, And this is just a sort of paradigm case of what you see again and again and again, where what starts as a quite uh, tightly defined concept comes to uh, include lots of other things um, beyond that. I mean, and, and you can even tell a bigger story about that with bullying. For instance, at one point it was active aggression, and now more and more we talk about just shunning or avoidance or um, you know neglectful kind of behaviours as being bullying as well. So the word just starts to acquire a whole bunch of new meanings.
0: I have a minor follow- up and then and then a proper question what what, what did they call bullying before that that before before the 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 uh, academic you mentioned came up with it? was it just rough and tumble or something? Yeah, I think it was just called childhood.
2: look, I think they um, <laughs> they just didn't have a name for it. look, I think and I don't want to be too facetious about this. Uh, you know always was doing a special thing. he's saying, look, we've talked about peer aggression uh, all this time. We accept that children can be horrible to one another. Um, and here's one particular type of pure aggression, different from the other types, which is worth uh, examining on its own. It's what we do all the time. We try to come up with more fine-grained um, uh, concepts for making sense of our experience. Uh, so I don't think there was a specific name for it. I mean, the word bullying itself, if you want to get boring, uh, isn't specific to psychology. It had been used for a very long time before, uh, before that. But I think psychologists weren't differentiating that idea from other ideas to do with aggression. Um, and all I'm saying is um, over time these, uh, the, these, this very well-defined concept kind of uh, broadened out. I should also say the one thing I forgot, sorry, just uh, which is also relevant, if you do your HR modules at a university or elsewhere, you'll now also find that you don't have to bully only downwards in a hierarchy, you can also bully upwards or sideways. So I'm now uh, able, uh, in theory, to bully my bosses uh, and my um, peers at the same academic level. Which is yet another way in which this idea has spread.
1: Uh, th- that would be a dangerous proposition, though. I mean, you, you get fired if you bully the boss, right?
2: Yes, I'm not planning to do that. Uh, the, <laughs> the point is simply that uh, the definition now encompasses uh, nasty behaviour in all directions, not just downward.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, that's that's brand new. I, I, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that um, uh, because I think that the at least the it, just thinking about uh, uh, the HR modules, and it's relied a lot in recent times on on power dynamics, I suppose, and the idea that you can't punch upwards has sort of worked its way into that. But now we're questioning even that. We're saying, okay, no, no, you can, in fact, you know, bully your boss.
2: Yeah, in theory, uh, and I guess most cases, of course, won't be like that because, as Ricky uh, pointed out, it's generally pretty unwise uh, to do that but um i'm talking just about word meanings at this point rather than what one ought to do
0: and in your uh, and we'll try and stop it we're very Im- emotive and uh, and, <laughs> and this is a field that we desperately want to know so we want you to be the the, the cooling influence on on perhaps our, uh, our our warm hearts but in your paper you talk about horizontal uh, expansion and uh, vertical expansion could you could you run us through those
2: sure yeah so look when i was proposing this idea i was saying concept meanings can spread in Two directions. So, bullying, for instance, can come to refer to an entirely new kind of behavior. That's what I call horizontal creep. So, take, for example, cyberbullying. Uh, back in the 70s, you couldn't cyberbully someone because there was no cyber, uh, it was only in person intimidation. Uh, and over time, and I'm not challenging this extension, I'm just saying it exists. Uh, there are forms of of digitally uh, mediated uh, bullying that happen. That's what I call horizontal creep. Now the concept of bullying refers to a different kind of behaviour, which it previously didn't refer to. So that's an example of horizontal. Vertical is more when the concept broadens to include milder, subtler, less severe kind of examples. So if you start referring to behaviour that's only um, engaged in once rather than, rather than repeated behaviour. Or if you start calling bullying things which are actually just fairly sort of minor or trivial rather than um, uh, very horrible. So a vertical creep, by my definition, is just where a meaning expands so that less severe harms get referred to by the concept, whereas horizontal creep is when new kinds of harms get referred to by the concept.
0: Do you have any uh, uh, sort of colourful examples of, of those?
2: Well, not really colourful necessarily, but here's another example of a concept that's crept, um, mental illness or mental disorder. So everyone knows that DSM uh, increasingly refers to a wider and wider range of human experiences and calls them mental disorders and that that's in some ways a good thing and in some ways a bad thing. Um, in terms of horizontal creep, um, the addition of new kinds of mental illness to the group of mental illnesses is a kind of horizontal creep. So, for instance, if you go from DSM one, the first edition of it back in 1952 to the second in 1968 to the third in 1980, the fourth in 1994 uh, and so on and so on. In each new edition, they define new classes of mental disorders. So, for instance, eating disorders uh, weren't mentioned in the early DSMs. Disorders of children weren't mentioned in the early DSMs, disorders of sleep weren't mentioned in the early DSMs. These are new kinds of disorder which are being added to um, the concept by being included under the disorders which are now considered to, to exist. So that's an example of, um, <clears throat> of horizontal creep, this sort of gradual spread of the idea of mental illness to encompass a wider and wider range of human experiences and behavior. And vertical creep is when you, say, relax the criterion for a particular disorder so that milder cases get called examples of the disorder. So, you know, one example that, that was quite important to DSM-5 in 2013 was the what's called the relaxation of the bereavement uh, exemption for defining depression. You know, so uh, back in the day, um, there was previously uh, an exemption that if you've recently undergone bereavement, uh, even if you look like you were depressed and have all the symptoms of depression, it doesn't count as depression. Um, but if you uh, relax that, remove that criterion as was, uh, as was done, then you encompass people who are grieving, not to say that's a mild experience, uh, under the concept of depression. So depression is coming to include uh, new kinds of cases which uh, arguably are not quite at the same level of pathology um, as, as previously. So those are examples. And you can give examples for every single one of these harm concepts uh, if you like. Uh, it's not that hard.
0: But that bereavement one's interesting, I've always thought that uh, and I'm glad they 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 perhaps addressed that because I always thought that might that would have made Hamlet a very short play if you know
2: <laughs> yeah that's a good point look and I think often a lot of the reaction to that debate was to say oh d s m is pathologizing everyday grief, it kind of wasn't uh it was still uh if the grief uh, bereavement experience was Um, greater than normal or more persistent than normal. It wasn't just pathologizing everyday grief and calling it depression, it was just sort of loosening the criteria for what could count as depression to include sort of complicated grief reactions.
1: Well, it seems though there are some hot debates about the expansion of the manual, the the, the fear that that there's been sort of needless inclusion of disorders that in some cases describe typical human experiences, uh, what's your view on this? Is, is is this overinflated? I think it's quite legitimate to worry about that, to worry
2: that we're pathologizing normal experiences. So, uh, as as you'll know, back at the time that the last DSN came out 2013, there was a huge debate about this, largely uh, orchestrated by Alan Francis, who had been the architect of the previous edition, who thought that... Um, uh, the very concept of normality was being endangered by the spread of the concept of mental illness, that they were loosening the, uh, the criteria for a whole bunch of con- um, conditions. And I think that was overblown, frankly. I think it's worth being concerned about, um, but it's also worth seeing that there is a positive side to this. People who are suffering uh, and might benefit from some sort of treatment if you include them uh, in um, a diagnostic system uh, when they previously weren't, you're at least taking their suffering seriously and maybe offering some sort of uh, hope for recovery for them. So it's not necessarily in all respects a bad thing. We did one analysis, we did a study um, about well, several years ago where we actually looked at whether this process of what's often called diagnostic inflation, the sort of expansion of diagnosis, whether that actually is a systematic process over the last few editions of DSM. Everyone assumes it is, and we found that it isn't. That overall, there hasn't been this kind of wholesale broadening of all of the concepts. Some have, so for instance, autism um, exploded um, uh, and got, it shrunk back a little bit uh, with DSM-5. Uh, attention deficit disorder broadened hugely. Um, So some disorders definitely inflate, but disorders in general, I think the suggestion that they've all just kind of gradually billowed out to include everything is just false.
1: Before we move on, perhaps it would be uh, a good idea to to, to define or or to give an explanation of DSM. Uh, So what is the acronym DSM?
2: It's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So it's the American Psychiatry's a uh, listing of um, the the set of disorders which are considered to be um, real and official uh, and including all of the criteria for diagnosing it so it sort of does two things it lists the range of disorders that are said to exist and it provides you with a set of rules for diagnosing who meets the criteria for each of those conditions. It's often referred to as the Bible of psychiatry, which really irritates me. It's not really a Bible. It's more like an identification guide. Uh, and again, without I'm not being flippant here. It's kind of like a, um, you know, what bird is that kind of book? It's, a, it's an identification procedure. It's not defining what mental disorder is. It's just saying, if you're in the business of treating, diagnosing um, mental disorder as a psychiatrist is, this is what exists and this is how you decide whether something is an example of each of those disorders.
0: Is, is calling it a Bible part of the reason? Is that driving some of the heat we, we, we see? Because if it's a Bible, it's something worth fighting wars over, right?
2: Yeah, I don't think it really helps calling it a Bible. I think you're quite right. It sort of inflames things and it makes people... It's also a way of disparaging the mental health industry in a way by suggesting it's just some sort of fundamentalist sect. Um, And, and, uh, you know, people like using that expression just because someone else has used that expression. I just think it's not particularly helpful. It's not laying down the law about what mental illness really is. It's really a practical guide. Uh, And these things exist in every other medical specialty. You know, there's a rheumatology um, uh, classification. No one gets upset about rheumatology, the changing definitions of arthritis uh you know they they get much more concerned about it with psychiatry because it's stuff that's about human mind and behavior and experience and deviance and people care a whole lot more about that
0: well one of the one of the examples you gave in in the expansion and the sort of uh, the decreasing was autism Uh, i my my, one uh my um nephew has autism and so i've obviously been through a lot with him and, and my sister but uh I felt for a little while there i there was a point where it really was I don't have autism you've got autism no you've got i know how dare you say I've got you've got it you can't tell me I've got autism so I really do feel like that was going on for about a little while and then now my sister said oh no they have sort of wound it back a bit and which i, I that's one area where I do feel Feel, I've 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 felt personally that that expansion and contraction.
2: Yeah, and I think that's really good example because again, you can tell a simple linear story that everything's expanding, uh, and that's inaccurate in particular cases. Like in autism, there was an expansion, uh, and then there's a contraction. Uh, things don't always inevitably inexorably go in one direction. Uh, And again, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily that concepts broaden. Sometimes it's really helpful. And the the reality about mental disorder, and this is another line of my own research, is that pretty much everything is on a continuum. Uh, And therefore, if everything's on a continuum, deciding where to draw the line between what is disorder and what is just normal variation um, can't be done in any sort of really principled way, or at least it's very, very hard to do it. So you've got to draw the line somewhere. And you can shift the line up and down. There is no real in nature dividing point between where, you know, autism starts and non-autism ends. Uh, So uh, really we shouldn't be surprised if the criteria move. And, you know, if the threshold changes, if um, more people start being uh, included in the spectrum, uh, why not?
1: Now, Nick, uh, just a bit earlier, I think I heard the N word slip out of your mouth, normality. Now this might be a silly question, but... Uh, we seem not to be allowed to use the word normal anymore. I- is there such a thing as normal or am I cancelled?
2: Um, you'll have to get off the podcast right now. I'm sorry, <laughs> Ricky, um, It's all over. I'm going to take over your slot. Um, I'm enjoying questions. Uh, look, I, I'm, this does frustrate me a little bit. Uh, people have got very touchy about using the word normality. I'm, I hope I don't get cancelled. Look, it's just a statistical abstraction. I think people maybe get... Bothered by the use of the word normal, or especially even worse, abnormal, uh, um, because it's taken to be uh, a sort of moral um, charge, or is it been is taken as stigmatizing. Whereas at some in some meaning of normal, I mean normal has many meanings, but one meaning of normal is just what's statistically typical. Uh, and abnormal is just what is statistically atypical. Not saying that atypicality is bad. Um, a lot of atypicality is quite good. I, I'd rather like to be a genius. Sadly it's not true, but if I was and abnormally or unusually uh, clever, that would be a good thing. Abnormality per se, in a statistical sense, is not evaluative. So uh, it does frustrate me. And this is actually, you know, it's overcome my field as well. So uh, I used to teach what was called abnormal psychology. There was a journal called the Journal of Abnormal Psychology that lived for 100 years under that name. And just this year it got changed to a completely Um, um, uh, messy name, which I forget, um, because the word abnormal is seen to be too stigmatising. And I think that's a little bit awkward. I mean, language changes, and and I'd hate people to think that the concept creep idea means language shouldn't change. That's definitely not what I'm saying. I'm at great pains to say that language ought to change, does change, and that's fine, and we shouldn't try to resist it too hard. But I do think people are a bit too touchy about this idea of normality and abnormality because it doesn't need to be stigmatising to say something that is beyond um, what's typical. But,
0: but just maybe teasing that out a, a little bit, because I, I, I'm fascinated by this, because it is such a, 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 a taboo saying the word normal now. And But I completely agree with you. Well, I, I'm interested I'm interested in your response that that, it, that it's evaluative. But at the same time, is it, this is just a, 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 another silly question, is it, is it fair to say that uh, in some cases, wanting to be normal or to become normal, to leave an abnormal sphere and enter a normal sphere, is is okay and something you might want to do.
2: Yeah, um, I, I might have got the question slightly wrong, but there's a great book by the British um, novelist Jeanette Winterston called um, "You Know Why Be Happy If You Can Be Normal," uh, which is all about this sort of issue. I mean, uh, but yeah, I think people are fooling themselves if they don't. Believe that they need to belong to some sort of group and be within the normal range, if you like, for that group or be typical for that group. People strive for that, but likewise, striving to be unique, striving to be different, striving to be, you know, abnormal in ways that you value is all part of personal identity as well.
1: Well, your 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 paper on concept creep, it's been cited by by respected writers and thinkers and critics like like Jonathan Haidt, Frank Faridi, uh, Eric Kaufman, Claire Lehman, just just to mention a few um but it's also crossed over into the cultural discussions surrounding issues of of cultural change now w- when you wrote this paper did you have any idea that it would have the popular impact that it had
2: short answer is no i mean you as an academic you expect to have no impact on anything uh really so it's always a bit of a surprise if something jumps over um, and has its moment of cultural relevance look i thought it was a really good idea at the time uh, i mean you wouldn't write papers um, if you didn't think they had something worthwhile in them. But yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. I mean, in retrospect, it wasn't that surprising in a sense because, you know, it was an attempt to say something broad. You know, I've been doing this for a very long time and um, the benefit of being a little bit older in the field is that you have, I think, a broader perspective just because you've been around longer. So it was an attempt to say something that wasn't just about mental illness or not just about prejudice or not just about bullying, but that spoke to something that I thought was going on in my discipline and also in the culture at large so long-winded answer but I, no i didn't expect it to to um, make a difference but i guess i hoped it would uh, i didn't really anticipate it'd be quite so it politicized it, it, I, you know i went in maybe a little bit naively, thinking i'm just observing something that's going on in the world speculating on what might be driving it um i didn't expect it would become quite a sort of hot potato as it has
0: yes well uh what does get a little lost in some of the reaction, is 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 that your as you say your exploration of concept creep, it's is meant to be as you say as you said before descriptive. Uh, in other words, you know you acknowledge broad positive and negative effects, but you make you sort of make no strong recommendation or judgment on the phenomenon. Uh, have you found we've already touched on this, but maybe we can tease it out. Have you found that people in some cases have conjured or inferred judgments on your part that are not there?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, look, I I think one thing I observed in the initial paper, uh, it appeared in a journal where um, you present your paper, other people send commentaries on it, including um, Frank Fioretti, who who was on your show previously, um, uh, and others, and then you get a chance to respond to them. And I think I was really taken aback by the reaction there because basically everyone, with one exception of my age and older, loved it. And everyone younger pretty much hated it, uh, along political lines. And some of it I thought was just astonishing. I was being um, um, uh, I was being viewed through a lens which was completely, I thought, wrong and unfair, as if somehow I was just some sort of culture warrior, which I genuinely wasn't. Uh, so yeah, I think views do get uh, ascribed to you. There's I mean, there's been some recent work by someone I won't name, who's you, you know repeatedly in print said that um, I'm. Uh, arguing against these changes, despite, you know, being as explicit as possible that um, I'm even-handed about, that I'm just describing, which is sort of ironic because I think, you know, if you were making a strong progressive case, if you were explicitly on one side of this argument and make a progressive case, you'd never have to um, go through all of the hoops I've gone through uh, of being even-handed. It would just be sort of taken, in my discipline at least, as being um, obviously true. So by saying something which I know is a little bit, now I know, uh, a little bit um, politically sensitive, I'm I'm, I'm really going to great lengths to just uh, say, look, this has good things, this has bad things. Uh, The overall evaluation of whether concept creep is uh, good, bad or indifferent or whether we should fight it or encourage it, uh, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just a a humble researcher.
0: Well, uh, I'm... Interested in the response academically that you got, uh, because we spoke to Eric Kaufman recently and he's done a lot of research into, into uh, political uh, views I- across generations. You know, uh, part of what we're doing today is to try and bring back the grey and bring back the nuance. But I really would like to, to if, if you could be a bit more explicit about what the divide was in in terms of age and and viewpoint uh, would you mind giving us an insight into that
2: yeah look i I'll, I'll do my best it's six years ago that this all came out and and um i think i'm gradually dementing so i don't remember too much of the detail and some of it actually i was a bit upset by it was uh i thought i didn't say that why are you why are you criticizing me if you say something i didn't say but look i think it was just this idea that um especially around the concept of prejudice. Uh, That's where a lot of the heated ideas came through. So, Just to to, to give you a sense of where I was coming from, I was just sort of pointing out that when psychologists started writing about prejudice, they were referring to something very blatant, blatant bigotry, where a group is being um, described in hateful ways, uh, very negative derogatory ways, very, very explicitly, where there's a kind of clear statement that uh, this group is um, less than fully human uh, and, and horrible. Whereas over time, psychologists have refined their concept of what, what uh, prejudice is in a way which I believe is a kind of creep. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means it's a thing. So, for instance, over time, you start referring to what's called modern racism, where it's not a matter of saying that a certain group um, has all of these horrible qualities. It's rather <coughs> um, uh, expressing views that maybe um, they're not as discriminated against as they might have been um, or some other kind of statement which shades into conservative political opinion and there's there's what's called aversive prejudice where it's not so much that you dislike the group it's more that you just try to avoid it or you're anxious in the presence of members of that group and then you get implicit prejudice you get all of this work on implicit bias where there's a um, a non-conscious negative attitudes towards a group and then you get the idea of microaggressions, where, um, uh, which I won't go into in more detail. But the, the point simply is that the concept is broadening over time. Now, critics were saying, "Ah, oh, you're arguing these things aren't real. You're arguing that microaggressions don't exist, or you're arguing that implicit bias is not real, or you're arguing that um, things have stretched too far, something I never said. Uh, I just pointed out, hey, we're now talking about things as being examples of prejudice, which we previously didn't consider um, examples of prejudice. That could be because um, bigotry is being pushed underground uh, as uh, social change has happened which is primarily of course a very good thing uh, but it's a thing i'm just describing it so it's very quickly uh, the moment you start talking about how concepts might be broadening over time that is being a social constructionist uh, you know recognizing that that history is real and that concepts shift in response to um, to, to historical changes the moment you start suggesting that this uh, idea might have spread it's assumed you're against it um, and rather than just describing it, and I think to this day still, uh, I think some people think that by talking about creep, even if I'm telling a kind of neutral game about it and deliberately pointing to the benefits as well as the costs as I see it, that I really underlying it and think it's a bad thing, uh, and it's just wrong.
0: Well, this is this is perfect, Nick, because this is going to go in my Annie Hall moment that I have with someone. I'm just saying, you you just watch. I'm going to be at some some you know thing and then i'm just going to come out there and say yeah you know nothing of dr haslam's work okay
2: all right so thank you for all of that please record that and send me a tape <laughs> or, or tape you don't have tape anymore but send me a recording yes, i definitely yes. will
1: well perhaps one of the problems is um that that people citing your work maybe aren't um aren't talking much about the positives so perhaps you can talk us through some examples of, of positive concept creep so i i think this is important because you know, I, th- I think it is fair to say that there there are more critics uh, and writers citing this paper to bolster cases for the negative, like we've discussed. But um so maybe you could help us readdress this balance in order to bring back some some nuance. You know,
2: sure. And look, I, I would just also gently correct that if you don't mind, Ricky, because sure. I, actually I think the critical work has been mostly by people who aren't. In my field, and then definitely not, there's very few people actually doing research on this within psychology. It, you know, a lot of what's going on in terms of the discussion of concept creep is on Twitter uh, or, or other social media. It hasn't really, uh, you know, penetrated my field that much. It gets cited occasionally and occasionally critically, but it doesn't really get engaged with terribly seriously as an idea, definitely not um, researched, even though. Uh, funded by a couple of grants from the Australian Research Council. We've done a gazillion studies documenting this and talking about some of the benefits and costs of them. Look, I'd say one of the benefits of it is, um, uh, in some cases, the expansion of ideas of uh, of, um, um, mental disorder. I think that's, in some cases, a good thing. Sometimes the boundaries have been drawn too narrowly, and people who really are experiencing substantial suffering, which isn't you know, recognized officially um, by current, you know, by, by, by earlier um, diagnostic procedures, uh, can get their um, suffering taken seriously. I think um, expanding the concept of bullying uh, in certain ways can be a good thing, because previously we might have said, "Ah, uh, that's just office politics, um, toughen up, princess. Now we sort of have a name for it, we recognize that it's bad behavior, we can label it, we can have programs to try to reduce it, we can allow people to make complaints about genuinely bad behavior by their superiors, um, etc. That's a good thing. Um, to use a research example, uh, I've got a, a terrific PhD student, um, uh, Jesse, who's done some work on um, not creep exactly, but on the importance of holding relatively broad concepts of mental illness to go back to mental illness. And she finds that people who hold broader concepts of mental illness are um, more likely to seek um, um, mental health treatment when they're uh, when they're suffering. They have more positive attitudes to help seeking. Having a narrow concept of what constitutes mental illness means you're less likely to identify your experiences as something that might benefit from professional attention. So, broader concepts can be good because they probably also destigmatize, but they uh, they, they also may encourage you to go and have your um, problem dealt with. Uh, And look, I could probably, um, you know, give examples of all of these things. I think the idea of unconscious bias, although it's been overhyped, is important because it's genuinely true that just because you people are no longer spewing um, the sort of racist bigotry you might've heard um, commonly um, a few decades ago, doesn't mean that everyone is um, uh, living in a um, racially egalitarian, Mind world, so a lot of these things have good aspects, and and I really do attempt to make that clear. I just say maybe that's not the entirety of the story.
0: Perhaps we can, you know, put put some of this to bed. Is is it appropriate to use your concept to talk about non psychological phenomena in some of the ways we've talked about? So, for example, you know, terms like racism or white supremacy have have people saying that they've gone uh, undergone a similar expansion. Uh, I'm interested because. I don't think you've been asked much about this. I, I, maybe you have, uh, in the stuff I haven't seen, at least in the online space that I've, I've, I've been in, uh, I've heard concept creep, and you being used in a very free manner. So I'd like to know what the limits of your of the, of the of your concept are, as you intended it.
2: Well, I'm not going to police the boundaries of how people use this idea, um, although you know maybe concept creep has crept. Uh, But look, it wasn't meant to be only about psychological concepts. It was meant to be about concepts to do with harm. And we don't own those uh, people in psychology. There's a lot of concepts of harm which are not our business any more than anyone else's. So it's really meant to relate to any concept that has to do with harm. Um, And, you know, you could say uh, defining what harm is is also difficult, I have to say. So it's going to have a fuzzy boundary. But yeah, racism, a form of harm or harming behavior. Um, um, Hate, we've written about hate, hate doesn't belong to psychology. Um, um, And also I mean when you define it in terms of harm related concepts it can include things which aren't Negative things. So I would say safety is a harm related concept, or protection is a harm related concept, or empathy, even, you know, concern for someone suffering, compassion. Uh, A lot of concepts like this have to do with harm. So I wasn't intending it to be only about psychological concepts, although I did put that in the title of the paper. I'm just using examples from my discipline, which is what I know best. Rather, it was just any kind of harm related concept, wherever you might find it, might. Have broadened in the way I'm talking about. I'm not saying all of them have broadened. I'm not saying that non-harm concepts haven't also potentially broadened. I'm just saying, hey, there appears to be a phenomenon where concepts to do with harm have systematically expanded in these two directions uh, over time.
0: Great. Well, well, maybe we can uh, dive into some of these in, in particular. So maybe starting with trauma, you've spoken uh on the broadening of the term trauma can can you explain from from uh you know your your experience what uh trauma is uh, say a generation ago to to what it is regarded to today
2: yeah look i think trauma is a great example and it's actually when we look at research on this we find trauma has broadened its meanings and become much more prominent in the culture more so than any other harm concept we've looked at so we just saturated in trauma these days and part of the problem with trauma as a concept is it means two rather different things. So people sometimes use trauma to refer to the subjective response to some negative event. You know, so I'm, I'm feeling trauma uh, and sometimes they're using it to refer to the event that caused it. Kind of like the word stress is the same. Some people use stress to mean you know the, the response and some use stress to refer to the cause of that response. But if you just refer to it in terms of the event, um, You can define trauma as, um, at least within DSM world, trauma is the kind of event that can, in principle, cause you to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD has only been with us since 1980, DSM-3. Of course, people did have the same set of symptoms and problems right back through shell shock in world war one and and and, um and and beyond
0: was this nerves is when they said you've got a nerve condition in like the 50s and stuff is
2: this Mm. earlier than that as well i mean the 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 vocabulary for referring to post-traumatic reactions has shifted over time i mean you can talk about hysteria as being a post-traumatic reaction as well in many cases so
0: sometimes i feel like that's come back Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) uh, You don't hysterical gets used occasionally, but more obviously in terms of you know laughter rather than suffering. But yeah, look, uh, I'm going off topic. I'm sorry, but trauma in the DSM sense referred to um, in 1980 experiences that was outside of normal human experience, where there was a serious threat of um, death or serious injury. And over time, over successive editions of the DSM, again scaling back a little bit with DSM five in 2013, it came to include less severe experiences. So the kind of things that could, could qualify you to potentially get a PTSD diagnosis were relaxed to include experiences that were not outside the range of human, normal human experiences, which is just seen as somehow developmentally inappropriate, uh, like early sexual experiences. Um, you get um, experiences which are not directly had oneself, but which are sort of witnessed, so vicarious trauma. Uh, you know, so watching, you know, in nine eleven, which was the year I left um, the USA, where I taught for a long time, uh, watching the planes hit the towers again and again, and again, seen as being traumatic, even if you were living somewhere thousands of uh, kilometres away. So the concept of trauma broadened from personally experienced very severe events to... Um, potentially just indirectly experienced uh, events that, that in no way endangered you physically. And the very idea of trauma, going back even further, originally trauma was referring to physical, or um, physical wound. The very idea of trauma as being something psychological itself is an example of concept creep because it's making a hop from physical wound to metaphorical psychological wound. But over time, I mean, a uh, uh, Trauma has come to refer to a much wider range of experiences and, and and events in the world. And, you know, psychiatry and psychology are only part of that story. You know, official definitions of what counts as a trauma are just part of the story because lay people, you know, the general public takes these broadened definitions and broadens them further. So people can refer to a bad hair day as, you know, traumatic or they can refer to um, seeing um, um, uh, some sort of unpleasant experience or any, doing an exam at uni or, or having a sort of uh, averagely bad romantic breakup uh, as a as a trauma. Um, and then you get all these other sort of um, new expressions like collective trauma, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, which again, not to say they're bad ideas, but just to say they're using this word trauma to refer to a wider and wider range of human experiences.
1: Mm. Well, we've been talking a lot about how, how, um, terms have been expanding sort of more in it, 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 more of the negative aspects, I guess, of human existence and how those those terms have expanded. but uh, but have we seen a similar expansion in terms uh, related to positive human experiences, say like joy or awe or wonder, for example?
2: I'm asked that sometimes, and I have a lot of trouble giving a good exa- uh, example of it. So I don't think we're we've lowered the threshold for what counts as joy or happiness or delight um or or any of these positive emotions i might be wrong we haven't really looked at it because again my focus has been on concepts to do with harm now again going back to what i just said earlier safety safety is a harm-related concept and it's a good thing most of us would prefer to be safe than unsafe right Uh, but the idea of safety has broadened over time so increasingly you'll see people referring to cultural safety let's say or safety in terms of not just protection from physical harm, but from some psychological harm, whether that's um, images or thoughts or ideas that are in some way objectionable to us. So I think that's one example of a concept that's broadened. I mean, probably this isn't really my field, but um, I would guess that the concept of health has kind of expanded. Often people use the word health to refer to a wide range of things beyond just having a body that's, um, that, that's, that's, uh, that's doing well. Um, Mental health is an obvious example, but I think uh, this idea of health is including sort of social health or something of that nature. Uh, Maybe that goes on. But at this point, I'm kind of spinning my wheels. Uh, There aren't that many good examples of positive concepts that are broadened to my knowledge. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Concept creep theory does not uh, entail that positive concepts haven't broadened. Uh, It just says we're going to focus on um, harm-related concepts that have broadened.
0: It seems disappointing that the that the bar for expanded happiness and joy is, is seemingly so high, and uh, yet the harm uh, uh, bar is incredibly, uh, incredibly low.
2: <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I think if you were to design an organism that had, you know, uh, the maximum possible happiness, you'd set a, a, a very sort of a high threshold for negative experiences and a very low threshold for positive experiences, you know, just... Things being barely good enough would fill us with um, ecstasy, and, and even horrible things wouldn't make us sad. Uh, and it, it seems like we may be going the other direction.
0: Well, just just to follow up on that, so so uh, what is your view on because this what you just said? If you were to design an organism uh, that did did the things you say, is in a way what some Eastern philosophies try and do. It's it's what it's what uh, the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, would would precisely run through he'd say you know be grateful but be, be in the moment find joy in 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 the blue sky or the or, or or the green grass or whatever whatever it may be so simple kindness here's here's one uh, that a uh, meditation that you do in in uh, buddhism all the time which is the web of kindness so you look at the at the street lamp and you say wow like you know, think of the of the incredible uh, gift that the, of the people, everyone who created this of light of this thing, and then then you have to also counter the examples of people go oh well because the, they come in and say well they're getting paid they're getting paid to do it and you say well that's not the point the point is it's 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 it is it is a, a kind of so what I'm saying is that I want to get your view on on how uh, the idea of using uh, uh, ancient wisdom Stoics uh, Buddha JC himself whatever to perhaps uh, you know in some cases counteract some of some of the if, if to use my word excesses that that we're, we're seeing what, what do you think of something like that
2: i think this sort of goes a bit beyond what i know enough about to at least pretend to be an expert uh, i'm afraid Uh, look i think that idea of benefit finding and gratitude is um there's obviously a huge degree of wisdom there and it's really important and and i think we could all uh, do that better i I wouldn't say that's an example of broadening what counts as kindness it's more finding new ways to respond or to to experience you know um positive feelings, um, uh, you know, new ways to extract that from from our experience, rather than redefining what it is. But yeah, look, I suspect that there, a story could be told about um, not so much finding benefits in uh, everyday experience and finding the positive in, in everyday experience, but rather finding ways to minimize the negative or to reframe the negative in ways that to don't make us catastrophize about it. I think that's a little bit maybe more relevant. And I haven't really explored this in any Great detail, but I think one of the concerns of concept creep, if you're sort of lowering the threshold for what counts as harm, whether that might, in some way, be sort of working against um, stoicism, the good the good parts of stoicism. You know, in other words, at what point does having a really threshold, really low threshold for what counts as harm make you more miserable than you need to be? Uh, obviously, horrible things happen to people all the time, and it's not completely up to how we define it, um, uh, define those harms how we experience uh the world but you sort of wonder if um we are developing hair triggers for defining things as being horrible does that make us more miserable than we need to be Um, and so maybe uh again it's not exactly the example you were giving john to do with um gratitude and finding benefit in the small neutral things or somewhat good things it's more a matter of um, thinking differently about the um slings and arrows of and negative experiences
0: well I, I i keep trying to draw you out of of your of your uh field uh, into the the area of punditry uh which uh, obviously uh, we uh, are very comfortable with so but we were speaking to a wonderful uh, uh headmistress from the uk at katherine burblesing who I- it runs a free school in in uh, for for sort of vulnerable and, uh, well, uh, the the populations that go there are underprivileged kids and she's bringing them an old school education uh, in, in, you know, very... Very strict, but but uh, you know, lots of rules. Like they've got silent corridors, and uh, you know, heavy rules on on mobile phone use. So they lock the phones away. Uh, they sing uh, "God Save the Queen" and Jerusalem at the beginning of the day to to for for social cohesion. And her view on some of this is, she says that you know. B- her critics and people come and say oh well you know what about systemic racism or structural racism or or, or the usual arguments against why these why uh, uh, these kids should probably throw up their hands and she would respond by saying reframing in the way that you that we've been talking about she says yes well the world is unfair and perhaps and maybe you were aggressed by by the white man or or you were you know there is racism out there but what are you going to do about it you know um i i suggest that you that you um do some hard do some hard work and do things that we can control in the everyday, and that you don't sit around uh, and and naval gaze about about um, these uh, uh, you know these rather uh, intangible concepts, real though they may be. What what, what do you, what would you say to something like that?
2: Yeah, look I, again. I'm, I'm sorry not to be drawn into being a pundit. Uh, I, I just really don't have really well formed um, views on that, and also I I, I don't want to. Uh, it's uh, good get in too much trouble. But look, I think there is something to be said for that. I think there is something to be said for uh, a pragmatic approach that doesn't, um, you know, um, put the blindfold on and, and ignore the fact that there are a lot of horrible things that happen, but recognise also that we do have some control over how we uh, experience adversity. And it's kind of obvious that if you if you define minor adversities as traumas, Uh, or if you focus on the world through the standpoint of vulnerability, um, maybe you're not going to get through those experiences as well as you might have if you would thought about them differently. And so at a cultural level, you know, getting steering away from your concrete example, I'm sorry, at a cultural level, if we are lowering the threshold for what counts as bullying, um, so that a whole lot of ordinary interactions potentially carry the risk of bullying threats, and grievances and complaints. Uh, That might not be a good thing in all respects. It might be a good thing in some respects. You know, it might root out certain kinds of tyrannical behaviour by bosses. Um, but it might also have um, some downsides. Emphasizing vulnerability, um, having a hair trigger for um, uh, relatively minor events, and that's all I'm really trying to do. Whether you know a return to singing Jerusalem is the is the way to overcome that, <laughs> uh, who knows? I think we want to do some randomised uh, control trials where some people sing Jerusalem and some people sing um, um, shiny happy people or, or, or something else. Uh, the studies have yet to be done. But um, look, I don't really know how you'd come about this. I'm really you know, trying to speak within my own expertise to say, let's think hard about whether there might be upsides and downsides of uh, you know, broadening these harm concepts.
1: Well, if you were to get out your crystal ball uh, what's the future with some of these these issues, based on current current data and, and and trends, and and good old gut feeling? Is the future going to be some kind of risk adverse and safety obsessed utopia, sort of like that movie Demolition Man with uh, with Sylvester Stallone, or or are these fears unfounded? It's
2: really hard to say, isn't it? Look, I think um, you know, I, I think things have a, a way of swinging back, you know, pendulum wise. So so my sense is, yes, there will be, uh, we're on this um, fairly clear trajectory where a lot of harm concepts are broadening, um, but at a certain point, uh, it is possible for them to, to, to swing back. And I, I suspect things might swing back a little bit, that there might be a little bit of um, backlash and, and reconsideration of some of the more Uh, expansive ideas of harm that are out there, people might start to think, well, maybe this actually has gone a little bit too far in some cases. Uh, Where that'll happen, uh, I don't know. Uh, But often it happens actually, you know, within specialist communities. So for instance, you do find in the trauma field, um, some trauma clinicians starting to refer to Uh, I'm told, you know, big T trauma versus little t trauma, where, you know, there is some some which is kind of like old, the old kind of trauma, which is the more severe kind, and the other kind, which maybe isn't quite so uh, important. Maybe over time, um, definitions of bullying will have been felt to be just too open-ended and lead to too much strife and too many false accusations, and and that'll scale back. My guess is that There'll be a, there's a sort of general increase in our in sensitivity to harm, which won't stop. It'll continue to rise, but there'll be more and more pushback when um, uh, more and more people start to feel it's a little bit ridiculous.
0: Well, uh, I believe you're not on social media, uh, Nick. Now, why is that? Do do you know something that we don't?
2: I'm just a bit of a technophobe. So it's not that I have some great wisdom. Uh, it's more that I'm just uh, not that interested and not that good at that stuff. And I also just know, I think if I was to get on Twitter, um, I would um, just get upset too often. I just don't like all the conflict. Um, I don't like all the point scoring. That doesn't mean I don't snoop on other people's Twitter uh, from time to time. I just think it would take up too much of my time and upset me too much. So uh, I'm just more happy to be in my ivory tower to try to write things um, for a specialist audience and at least have um, a bit of viewpoint diversity uh, in my field, and try to popularise from time to time by writing more accessible pieces. So, yeah, that's the main reason. It's more just inertia rather than a uh, great wisdom.
0: Well, you've saved yourself a lot of uh, suffering, I would say. But, 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 but maybe following following that train of thought, your paper was published in 2016. Now, that seems fitting in many ways. It was the year uh, of Donald Trump's presidency and arguably the beginning of, well, at least what feels to the layperson like a very tumultuous time, uh, at least what we're getting out of the media and, in, and the internet, uh, whether our day-to-day lives are, are that different, is who's to say? Uh, but uh, in light of some of the things we've seen coming out of, I don't know, America, for instance, I mean, you lived there for a while, so you obviously keep your toe in a little bit. Uh, were you, Since you released the paper on these expanding definitions, were you unsurprised, surprised, uh, by some of the uh, maybe some of the the reactions that we saw, because all the things that, that we've been talking about, uh, we've seen reactions to. Uh, you know, and I don't want to, I'm trying not to just cite the the memeified bad examples, but, you know, people screaming at the sky about Donald Trump or even Hillary Clinton or whatever, like all that sort of stuff, you know what I mean? So having since written the paper and watching this stuff from afar, what was your reaction? Did you, did you have any sort of reaction at all?
2: Well, not particularly. Look, I think it was clear that what I'd pointed out there um, only became truer. Over time, and this, this tendency, uh, especially on, on US college, elite US college campuses, I don't think it was sort of uh, nationwide by any standards, that it really was um, a lesson in how concepts do broaden and, and some of the dynamics that might be driving that broadening. So, yeah, I mean, not particularly in relation to, to Trump uh, necessarily, I, I don't really see too many connections there, but rather just general cultural shifts in the continuing expansion of how we define a lot of these harm concepts. I think, um, yeah, it was good. I feel I was slightly before my time. Having said that, you know, I think a lot of people will say, "Ah, a lot of what you're referring to is just a decade old. Uh, And I don't think it is. I think this has been going on progressively for several decades. And, in fact, we do have some evidence on this. We we do find that around about 1980 or thereabouts, there was this sort of uh, gradual rise in the salience of harm uh, in the culture at large, uh, where um, uh, a lot of these sort of trends were occurring. And so a, a lot of commentators with relatively short time horizons will say, ah, this was all you know, college campus war, culture warrior kind of stuff that's going on just uh, just over you know, a relatively short period of time. I, I think it's a, a longer-term shift in, in, in values and in language um, that goes back some deal further.
1: We well, mentioned uh, college campuses just then. H- have you felt the chilling effects at all on on campuses? Because you've you've been in and around them for, for for a while now.
2: Not so much for two reasons. So I, I taught in the US for um, uh, eight years, um, uh, and this just wasn't a, a, an issue. That was back in the uh, uh, mid nineties, basically. Uh, and then in the twenty years I've been at Melbourne, um, so so other no, words, there wasn't that much. I mean, there was a lot of um, there, there there was a lot of uh, political discussions, but it wasn't really to do with word meanings or, or or expansion of concepts. At least I don't think it was. And then here uh, we just get a very diluted version of um, what goes on in the US. So although um, to hear some people write. Uh, the university is just a sort of uh, um, full of safe spaces and trigger warnings and content restrictions and and, and um, people biting their tongue for fear of being cancelled. Uh, there's been a whole lot less of that here that there has been at places like sort of Yale or, or, or Northwestern or all of the, uh, the, the places where there have been you know, conflagrations over in the USA. So there was a little bit of discussion a few years ago about Trigger warnings. I know some people in the arts faculty routinely use them. Uh, I go with the data which shows that they're completely useless and often counterproductive, but it just hasn't become an issue. Uh, it, it, where there's just much less heat over these sort of topics in Australian universities, in my experience, than in other ones. Now, you do get some changes. So I, I, I have found, for instance, that when I give my first year lecture on Freud, you know, the one lecture on Freud that they're going to get their entire um, undergraduate experience. Um, some people have started to say, how come you don't give us a warning uh, in advance when you talk about the um, so-called seduction theory of hysteria, where I'm very, very, you know, um, there's no gratuitous details. Basically, I, I come and say, look, this was a, um, this, this idea that um, sexual abuse causes hysteria um, is real, and Freud's, um, um, thinking through it was really kind of cowardly and, and there's no sort of gratuitous detail but students occasionally are now saying you really should have told us in advance you were going to mention um, the idea that sexual abuse might have an in- impact on mental illness. I'm um, triggered. I never used to get that uh, in the day. And again, people have been very polite about it. No one's called for my head on a plate um, but it's that's the one change I've seen. But even then, it's not like a groundswell. It's never really become an issue. Uh, I think we're a little bit more... Um, yeah, just cool about these things here uh, compared
1: to what you might hear about from elite American college campuses? Mm. Well, I, I've i taught at a few tertiary institutions uh, here in Melbourne, and I, I won't name them, but one in particular uh, had sort of... Uh, A very, I can only say sort of aggressive uh, signage policy around, you know, telling students that they're in a safe space and if they feel, you know, if they feel unwelcome or if they feel uh, stressed out or if they feel depressed, like the, 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 um, I guess the counselling side uh, of the of the uh, of the campus sort of grew as well. Like there's, I mean, so it was only a very small campus, but there's five or six counsellors that you could come and see at any time. And and I and I often felt walking around that that maybe all this signage was a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Like like that students might walk around going, oh, maybe maybe I should feel anxious, maybe. I, should feel depressed like it's all these images and signs saying oh you know don't feel you know so i was in dr haslam's
0: class and and he talked about (laughs) Freud, like i I don't know wanting to have sex with women or something i don't know i'm triggered so where's the counselor Uh,
1: what do you think sort of this whole uh i don't know safety it's almost like an industry now i mean how how does that impact young students just walking around campus do you think
2: i think we don't really know Uh, look i think it's a really interesting question that you're raising Certainly, the university has become a much more therapeutic institution uh, over time. And again, I don't think that's in all respects a bad thing. You know, there's a lot of um, young people who are who are suffering and the pandemics increased that and it doesn't hurt to at least um, make it known that there are resources available. And, and, um, you know, I think universities do have some kind of duty of care to to students. Now, whether it goes over the top, you know, whether the um, uh, level of um, uh, announcement of the prevalence of mental health problems or the need to look after yourself or the need to be safe, whether that goes too far and whether that might have paradoxical effects to sort of make people feel more vulnerable and maybe experience more troubles. We just don't know. I don't think it's entirely inconceivable that there is some aspect of that. But no one, to my knowledge, has studied it to this point. Uh, I think most people generally ignore these messages. You know, so there's, the messaging is partly done as a, you know, to, to advertise um uh, that this is a caring institution. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there's a, there, there is a concern if the discourse is so much about mental illness, mental health, suffering. Uh, at some point, people are very alert to what, what in psychology you call a descriptive norm. If you say the descriptive norm is that most people are experiencing terrible things, uh, you are surely more likely to interpret your own experience through that lens and whether that might lead to Um, um, to to, to greater suffering or might lead you to misidentify everyday unhappiness, which we all experience all the time, as if it was mental illness. I think that's an issue. We're studying this at the moment, actually. We're finding ways to uh, assess how broad your concept of mental illness is. You know, do you tend to identify relatively mild levels of distress as being um, pathological as being mental disorder, or do you just sort of recognize it as, yeah, this is just what happens in life. This is part of um, part of being human. And we don't yet know what the consequences of those differences between people are. But it would be surprising if there were no consequences. It would be surprising if people have had very, very broad concepts where relatively mild everyday experiences were seen as being mental illnesses, it'd be very surprising if that didn't have some potentially adverse effects uh, on them. Because the reality is distress is just part of being human, right? Um, and uh, it, it isn't intrinsically uh, mental disorder unless it's severe, persistent and impairing. Simply having distress doesn't make you mentally disordered. And I think the culture's lost sight of that to some extent. Um, and um, people are a little bit too prone sometimes to refer to just everyday worries as being clinical anxiety, everyday sadness or loss as being depression. Uh, I, I do think there could be a downside to this. But having said that, um, the research hasn't been done yet.
0: Well, well, this is our, our last major question, and it can be a very short answer if you like. But I wonder, you've brought such a... a, a a calming energy to the debates we normally uh, get sucked into uh here on the podcast and uh what do you think that people uh activists or people who over identify with the culture wars or, or and a feeling that they're just getting totally sucked in that now i know you're not like you know you don't have to advocate for them to do anything but i feel like would it be worth these people at least being curious about the, the, their, their well-being and their, psych, their psychological well-being in general? Before, you know, if, the, if, for example, right or left, you're crying about something that doesn't have anything to do with your daily life, is it, would it, is it, is it worth actually being maybe a little bit curious about yourself before you go out and act on those things?
2: Yeah, I think look, curiosity about yourself and self-knowledge and insight are generally good things, right? And I think it's it's it, we shouldn't be getting heated um, to the point of um, distress. Uh, you know, it doesn't lead to good arguments. It doesn't lead to productive disagreements. I think we want to have productive disagreements rather than um, unproductive name-calling ones where everyone gets distressed. So uh, I think if there's more of that, that'd be a good thing. You know, I think I've always um, you know been a fan of my PhD supervisor uh, <coughs> for a time, who was also John Heights. I mean, John Height and I shared an office. I'm not sure you knew that. We were we, were, we were grad student buddies right through. Um, uh. Showstopper. That is big. <laughs> yeah, now, now it's my turn to name drop. But basically we both shared a supervisor who was all, uh, his research was all about how do you be rational and how do you have good... Um, how do you think well? And thinking well, he said, is all about actively open-minded thinking, deliberately trying to seek out uh, a breadth of opinions and form, um, you know, well-justified, um, uh, uh, even-handed uh, ways of thinking about, uh, about problems. I didn't really do it justice then. But the idea is that's what you should strive to. You should strive for not just uh, always being right or not just beating the person in some sort of uh, uh, Twitter exchange. You should say, what is the truth here? It's an old-fashioned idea, but it would be good to seek the truth in a dispassionate kind of way.
1: Uh, we, we like to end all of our uh, all of our interviews with the same question, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now.
2: I'm reading a book called *The Body Keeps the Score*, a sort of famous book on trauma, because I'm meant to be um, reviewing it um, uh, for uh, a magazine. Uh, why it's been so enduringly popular for um, <clears throat> you know for, for a very long time. So I, funny, I hadn't read it before, but it's been sort of high apparently on the New York Times uh, um, bestseller lists for a very long time. So that's that's really what I'm reading.
0: Wonderful. Well, people can't find you on social media, and I think that that is good. But if they do, if they are interested in 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 hearing or seeing, reading more of your work, where where can they do so?
2: They can find me um, on my ResearchGate page. They can sort of look up ResearchGate and there's a whole bunch of papers they can get hold of or they can request them from me if they want that. Uh, I mean, they can also get a list of uh, academic work um, on my Google Scholar um, page. Again, it's all very academic, I know. Um, but really, those are the two places. Or they can you know, send me an email through my um, sort of university account.
0: And I can verify that Nick does get back to you.
1: So... <laughs> that happens that happened it's real
0: yes. now this this happened <laughs>
1: well thank you so much nick for uh for being on the show um we, we've loved all your insights
2: thanks so much it's, it's a, i really I'm, I'm flattered to receive this attention and, and you've asked some questions no one else has so um, thanks so much
1: oh thanks nick